Chapter Three of the Shortstop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Rowdy Delaney, Idaho, USA. The Shortstop by Zane Gray. Chapter Three, Fame. Chase would have sustained worse bruises than he got to rid himself of the atmosphere of that car. When he was once free of it, however, he fell to wondering if the negro were really killed. Perhaps he had only been wounded, and was in need of assistance that Chase could have rendered. The thought cut him, but he dismissed it from mind and addressed himself once more to his problem. The village consisted of a few cottages. There was no railroad station, and on a siding stood a car marked T and O C. Chase sat in the grass beside the track, and he did not know whether to walk or wait for another train. Meanwhile, the sun rose warm and bright, shining on the bursting green leaves. Meadow larks sang in a field nearby, and flocks of blackbirds winged irregular flight overhead. That May morning was full of life and hope for Chase, but even so, when two hours passed by with no train or even person putting in appearance, he began to grow restless and presently made a remarkable discovery. He was hungry. He had not given a thought to such a thing as eating. It was rather discomforting to awake to the fact that even in quest of fortune, meals were necessary. A column of blue smoke. Was curling lazily from one of the cottages, and thither Chase made his way. He knocked on the kitchen door, which was opened by a woman. Good morning, Chase said. May I have a bite to eat? You ain't a tramp? queried she, eyeing him shrewdly. No, indeed. I can pay. I thought not. Tramps don't say good morning. I reckon you can hive something. Sit on that bench there. She brought him milk and bread and butter and a generous slice of ham. While he was eating, a boy came out to gaze at him with round eyes, and later a lanky man with pointed beard walked up the path, his boots wet with dew. Mornin', he said cheerily. Be you travelin' fur? Quite far, I guess, replied Chase. How far is Columbus, or the first big place? Wall, now, Columbus is a mighty long way, much as fifty miles, I calculate. And the nearest town to Hum here is. Jacktown, cross fields some five miles. It's a right pert place, and it'll be lively today by gum. Why, said Chase, his mouth full of ham. Wall, Jacktown, and Brownsville have it out today, and I bet it'll be the doggonest ball game ever was. Ball game? You bet. Jacktown ain't never been beat, and neither has Brownsville. They've been some time getting together, but today's the day, and I'll be there. I'm going too," said Chase quietly. "I'm a ball player." After Chase crossed this Rubicon, he felt more confident. He knew he would have to say it often, and he wanted practice. And the importance of his declaration was at once manifest in the demeanor of the man and the boy. While I swan, you be, be you? I might have known a strappin' young feller like you. The boy's round eyes grew rounder. And took on the solemn rapture of hero worship. How might I find my way to Jacktown? Inquired Chase. You might wait and ride with me. That road leads over roundabout. You can't miss it. Thank you. I shan't wait. I'll walk over. Good day. 
Chase headed into the grassy lane without knowing exactly why. The word game had attracted him, as well as the respective merits of the two teams, but it was mostly that he wanted to play. After consideration, it struck him that he would do well to get into a few games before he made application to a salaried team. He spent the morning lounging along the green lane, sitting under a tree and on a mossy bank of a brook, and killing time in pretty places, so that when he reached Jacktown it was noon. At the little tavern where he had lunch, the air was charged with the electricity of a coming storm. The place was crowded with youths and men of homely aspect. All were wildly excited over the baseball game. He was regarded with an extraordinary amount of interest, and finally, when a tall individual asked if he were a ball player, to be answered affirmatively, there was a general outburst. He's a ringer! Brownsville knowed they'd get beat with their home team, so they've loaded up. That was the burden of their refrain, and all Chase's stout denials in no wise mitigated their suspicion. He was a ringer. To them, he was an object of scorn and fear, for he had come from nowhere, out of the vast unknown, to wrest their laurels from them. Outside, little groups had congregated on corners and in the street, and suddenly, as by one impulse, they gathered in a crowd before the tavern. Ample reason there was for this, because some scout had sighted the approach of the visiting team. Chase gathered that Brownsville was an adjoining country town, and, since time out of mind, a hated rival. Wagons and buggies, vehicles of all kinds and descriptions, filed by on the way to the ball-grounds and a hay-wagon with a single layer of hay and a full load of husky young men stopped before the tavern. The crowd inspected the load of young men with an anxiety most manifest, and soon remarks were heard testifying that the opposing team had grace enough to come with but one ringer. The excitement, enthusiasm, and hubbub were amusing to chase. He knew nothing of the importance of the game of ball between the two country towns, while he was standing there, a slim, clean-faced young man came up to him. "'My name's Hutchinson,' he said. "'I'm the schoolteacher over at Brownsville, and I'm here to catch the game for our fellows. Now, it appears that there's some fuss about you being a ringer. We don't know you, and we don't care what Jacktown thinks, but the fact is our pitcher hurt his arm and can't play. Either we play or forfeit the game. If you can pitch, we'll be glad to have you. How about it?' Chase assented readily, and moved to the hay-wagon with Hutchinson, while the crowd hooted and yelled. Small boys kept up a running pace with the wagon, and were not above flinging pebbles along with shouts of defiance. At the end of the village opened up a broad green meadow, upon which was the playground. There was a barn to one side, where the wagon emptied its load, and here the young men went within to put on their uniforms. The uniform handed to Chase was the one belonging to the disabled pitcher, who must have been a worthy son of Ajax, for Chase was no stripling, yet he was lost in its reach and girth. The color of it stunned him. Brightest of bright red flannel, trimmed with white stripes, with white cotton stockings, this gorgeous suit voiced the rustic lad's enthusiasm for the great national game. But when Chase went outside and saw the uniforms decorating the proud persons of the Jacktown Nine, he could hardly suppress a wild burst of mirth, for they wore blue caps, pink shirts, green trousers, and red stockings. 
Most of them were minus shoes, and judging from their activity, were as well off without them. What was most striking to Chase, after the uniforms, was the deadly earnestness of the players of both teams. This attitude toward the game extended to the spectators crowding on the field. Chase did not need to be told that the whole of Jacktown was present, and much of Brownsville. Hutchinson came up to Chase then, tossed a ball to him, and said they better have a little practice. After Chase had warmed up, he began throwing the ball with greater speed and giving it a certain twist which made it curve. This was something he had recently learned. At first, Hutchinson was plainly mystified he could not get his hands on the ball. It would hit him on the fingers or wrists, and finally a swift in-shot struck him in the stomach. Wherefore, he came up to Chase and said, I never saw a ball jump like that. What do you do to it? I'm throwing curves. A light broke over the schoolmaster's face, and it was one of pleasure. I've read about it. You're throwing the new way. But these lads never heard of a curve. They'll break their backs trying to hit the ball. Now tell me, how shall I know when you're going to throw a curve? You sign for what you want. When you kneel back of the batter, sign to me, one finger for fastball, two fingers for a curve. Good, cried Hutchinson. After a little more practice, he managed, with the aid of his lately acquired knowledge, to get in front of Chase's curves and to stop them. Presently, a pompous individual wearing a Jacktown uniform came up to Chase and Hutchinson. Bat in order, he said, waving his pencil. Hutchinson gave the names of his players, and when he mentioned Chase's, the Jacktown man either misunderstood or was inclined to be facetious. Chase away? Is that the name? Darn me, if he won't chase away to the tall timber. He was the captain, and with a great show of authority he called both teams round the home plate for the purposes of being admonished, lectured, and told how to play the game by the umpire. Chase had not seen this official, and when he did see him his jaw dropped. The umpire wore skin-tight, velveteen knee trousers, black stockings, and low shoes with buckles. His striped shirt was arranged in a full blouse, and on the side of his head was stuck very wonderfully a small, jaunty cap. He addressed the players as if he were the arbiter of fate, and he lifted his voice so that the audience could receive the benefit of his eloquence and understand perfectly the irrevocable nature of the decision he was about to render. In conclusion, he recited a number of baseball rules in general, and ground rules in particular, most remarkable in themselves and most glaringly designed to favor the home team. Chase extracted from the complexity of one of the rules that on a passed ball behind the catcher or an overthrow at first, when Jacktown was at bat, the players could have all the bases they could make. And when Brownsville was at bat, for some inscrutable reason, the same rule did not hold. Then this master of ceremonies ordered the Jacktown team into the field, tripped like a ballet dancer to his position behind the catcher, and sang out in a veritable clarion blast, Play ball! Chase could scarcely remove his gaze from the umpire, but as his turn came to bat in the first inning, he directed his attention to the Jacktown pitcher. He remembered that someone had said this important member of the Jacktowns was the village blacksmith. After one glance, Chase did not doubt it. 
The pitcher was a man of enormous build, and his bare right arm looked like a branch of a rugged oak tree. The first ball he shot toward the home plate resembled a thin white streak. One strike, shrieked the umpire. Two more balls, similar to the first, retired the batter, and three more performed the same office on the second batter. It was Chase's turn next. He was a natural hitter and had perfect confidence. But as the first ball zipped past him, looking about the size of a pea, he knew he had never before faced such terrific speed. Nor did he have the power to see in that farmer blacksmith one of the greatest pitchers the game was ever to produce. Chase struck at the next two balls and was called out. Then the Jacktown players trooped in to the wild clamor of their supporters. When Chase saw some of the big Jacktown fellows swing their bats, he knew that he would have an easy time with them, for they stood with their feet wide apart and held their bats with left hand over right, which made a clean, straight swing impossible. He struck out the first three batters on nine pitched balls. For several innings it went on in that manner, each club blanking the other. When Brownsville came in for their fifth inning at bat, Chase got Hutchinson to call all the players round him in a bunch. Boys, he said, we can hit this Jacktown pitcher. He throws a straight ball almost always waist high. Now, you all swing too hard. Let's choke the bat, hold it halfway up instead of by the handle, and poke at the ball. Just meet it. The first player up, acting on Chase's advice, placed a stinging hit into right field. Whereupon the Brownsville contingent on the sidelines rose in a body and roared their appreciation of this feat. The second batter hit a ground ball at the shortstop, who fielded it perfectly, but threw wild to the baseman. And the third batter sent up a very high fly. The whole Jacktown team made a rush to try and catch the ball when it came down. It went so high that it took some time to drop all of which time the Brownsville runners were going like mad round the bases. When the ball returned to earth, so many hands were raised to clutch it that it bounced away to the ground. One runner had scored, and two were left, on second and third bases respectively. Chase walked to the plate with determination. He allowed the first ball to go by, but watched it closely, gauging its speed and height. The next one he met squarely with a solid crack. It shot out over second base, went up and up, far beyond the fielder. Amid the delirious joy of the Brownsville partisans, the two runners scored ahead of Chase, and before the ball could be found, he too reached home. The Jacktown players went to pieces after that, and fumbled so outrageously and threw so erratically that Brownsville scored three more runs before the inning was over. Plain it was that when Jacktown came in for their bat, nothing short of murder was impossible for them. They were wild-eyed and hopped along the baselines like Indians on the warpath, but yell and rage and strive all they knew how, it made no difference. They simply could not get their bats to connect with Chase's curves. They did not know what was wrong. Chase delivered a slow, easy ball that apparently came sailing like a balloon straight for the plate and just as the batter swung his bat the ball suddenly swerved so that he hit nothing but air some of them spun around so viciously did they swing 
but not one of them so much as touched the ball. The giant pitcher grunted like an ox when he made his bat whistle through the air, and every time he swung at one of the slow, tantalizing balls to miss it, he frothed at the mouth in his fury. His reputation as a great hitter was undone that day, and he died hard. In the eighth inning, with the score eleven to zero, matters were serious when the Jacktown team came in for their turn at bat. They whispered mysteriously, and argued aloud, and acted altogether like persons possessed. When the first batter faced Chase, the other players crowded behind the plate, where already a good part of the audience was standing. "'It's his eye, his crooked eye,' said one player, pointing an angry finger. "'See that? You watch him, and you think he's going to pitch the ball one way, and it comes in another. It's his crooked eye, I tell you.' A sympathetic murmur from the other players and the crowd attested to the value of this remarkable statement. The first batter struck futilely at the balls, getting slower and more exasperating, and when he had missed three he slammed his bat on the ground and actually jumped up and down in his anger. The second batter aimed at a slow-coming ball and swung with all his might, only to hit a hole in the air. With that the umpire tripped lightly before the plate and standing on his tiptoes waved his hand to the spectators his eyes were staring with excitement and on his cheeks blazed the hue of righteous indignation game called he yelled in his penetrating tenor pandemonium broke loose among the spectators they massed on the field in inextricable confusion the noise was deafening hats were thrown in the air and coats and everything available for throwing Hutchinson fought his way through the crazy crowd, and grasping Chase pulled him with no gentle hand from the mob in the direction of the barn. Once out of the tumult, he said, Hurry and change. I don't like the looks of things. These Jacktown fellows are rough, and I think we'd better hurry out of town. It was all so amusing to Chase that he could not help laughing. But soon Hutchinson's sober aspect and the wild anger of the other Brownsville players who poured noisily into the barn put a different coloring on the affair. What had been pure fun for him was plainly a life-and-death matter to these rustics. They divided their expression in mauling Chase with fervent congratulations and declarations of love and passionate denunciations of the umpire and the whole Jacktown outfit. Suddenly, as loud shouts sounded outside the barn, Hutchinson ran out, to return at once with a startled look. "'You've got to run for it,' he cried. "'They're after you. They're in a devil of a temper. They'll ride you on a fence-rail, or tar and feather you. Hurry! You can't reason with them now. Run for it. You can't wait to dress.' One look down the field was sufficient for chase. The Jacktown players were marching toward the barn. The blacksmith led the way. Over his shoulder hung a long fence-rail. Behind them the crowd came yelling. "'Run for it!' Hutchinson cried, greatly excited. "'I'll fetch your clothes.' Chase had removed all his uniform except stockings and shoes, and he had put on his shirt. Grabbing his hat, trousers, and coat, he bounded out the door and broke down the field like a scared deer. When the crowd saw him they let out a roar that lent wings to his feet. It so frightened him that he dropped his trousers and did not dare stop to recover them. Over his shoulder he saw the Jacktown players, with the huge pitcher in the lead, start after him. 
The race was close only for a few moments. Chase possessed a fleetness of foot that now served him in good stead, and undoubtedly had never appeared to such advantage. With his hair flying in the wind, with his shirt-tails standing straight out behind him, he sped down the field, drawing so rapidly away that his pursuers seemed not to be running at all. End of chapter 3